Hello, everyone. My name's Aiden. And my name is Ropa Fadzo. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Behind the Scalpel. Today, we've invited Associate Professor Ria Liang, whom many of you may know from our other Sergia events, to have a chat about the changing landscape of surgery and how the future generation of consultants should prepare for it. Associate Professor Liang is a general and breast surgeon on the Gold Coast, a surgical educationalist, and a diversity in surgery advocate. Thank you for being here with us. It's my pleasure. So, uh, before we uh, get things started and uh, jump on into the meat of the episode, is there anything in your bio that we missed or that you want to elaborate on? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm I'm a bit of a nerd, and so in actual fact, I hold now three different fellowships, um, as well as a whole bunch of different degrees, um, and I also just last week became, alongside Associate Professor Julie Howell from Sydney, we became the first two female counsellors ever of the American College of Surgeons ANZ chapter, um, because one of the fellowships I hold is with the American College of Surgeons. So just to say, you know, women are still doing our firsts. Yeah. So there's still lots of barriers to break down, but, mm. you know, busily doing that yeah. sort of stuff. Mm. That's wonderful to hear. Congratulations on that. Well, it's my pleasure. I plan to shake the trees a little bit harder wherever I go. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you will. We love to hear that. Um, so when we first approached you to do this episode, you expressed that you think it would be really important to have a chat about how the landscape of surgery is changing um, compa compared to what it used to look like and um, when current students enter the field as consultants, what that will look like in the future. Can you tell us about why you think it's important to talk about this? Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is it takes a long time to train a surgeon. Um, it takes about 10 years from the point of graduation to medical school. And someone like me who might look and sound young, I've been a consultant now for 14 years. So if you say to me, you know, what should we do in medical school to prepare for surgery? I can only speak from my own experience, but my own experience is 24 years ago you know, like almost quarter of a century. So unless whoever you're talking to is actively engaged, so actively engaged in delivering exams or courses or um, selection for training or whatever, then whoever you ask as a consultant is already telling you stuff that's at least a decade old. So it's really important as students to take that sort of advice with a grain of salt because you get a lot of advice. People say you should do this, you should do that. Um, and it's like, well, are they speaking from their own experience, which may be a little dated, or are they actually involved in rolling out the training and exams and courses, in which case what they say is probably quite current. But keeping in mind also that by the time you finish your training, it's another decade again. So we're talking 2030. 
what's surgery going to look like by then and how do you prepare for it? Because that's actually what you're training for. So it's important for us to look ahead. Very true. We need to become forward thinkers. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, and even like the 10-year the, uh, uh, kind of figure that you mentioned there with uh, the time being from medical school graduation to the end of fellowship training, That's even that's increasing now. Like uh, I, I feel like you'd be even a little bit hard-pressed to find someone that young out of medical school uh, yep. as a consultant. And keeping in mind that students are more commonly postgrad than undergraduate, um, and so you will have probably sh slightly shorter consultant lifespans compared to some of us who went through from undergraduate. Um, so you really need to hit it hard, you know, if, if you're going to only have 20, decade, uh, 20 years, so two decades of consultant practice after you qualify, then what do you actually want to do? You know, you want to really be on the cusp, right on the future edge, not one of the late adopters, because if you start behind the eight ball, you're not going to make an impact in those 20 years. Mm. Mm. All right. Now that we've uh, established why it's important to think about the future, uh, let's start to try to project a little bit. So the first thing people think about when they think of the future of uh, surgery, I think is medical innovation and technologies and procedures. So uh, we'll start with that. What, what do you think technology and procedures will look like in about 10 years time or even further? Or, it's yeah. hard to imagine but it's finding that balance between being on the cusp but not falling victim to fads. So, um, and that's really where it comes in handy to, to develop your academic skills. Now, not everyone is going to be what they call an academic surgeon, like not everyone is going to have an active research portfolio, but everyone needs academic skills in terms of being able to read the research and figure out whether it makes sense or not. And I think that's been particularly well illustrated during COVID. You know, there was so much information coming out. It was like, right, what, what information do we trust? What's trustworthy and how do we assess the quality of what's coming out? Um, so I know they teach you those skills really well in medical school, but it's just getting into the habit of applying that to everything you read. So for instance, you know, things like um, when I was coming through, the big thing was laparoscopic surgery. And there were plenty of people who poo-pooed it and said, this is just rubbish. It'll never take off. It's newfangled. And there were others who said, yeah, 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 this is the next best thing and ended up with quite high rates of, say, common bile duct injuries. And so really the best people were the ones just behind that front edge who were like, wait, 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 we just need to read the evidence. But as soon as we see the evidence, we're happy to take it up. Um, but we want to train properly in it. And I think that's the appropriate mindset. So I can't tell you what's going to come in the next 10 years. I mean, goodness only knows who would have predicted everything that's happened in the last 10 years, right? Um, including a pandemic. <laughs> um, but, you, you know, you cannot predict. But what you can do is make sure that you're in a good position and have the right mindset so that whatever surgery does throw you, you've got the skills to meet it. So on the cusp at the moment, you know, if you look around, robotic surgery is kind of the big technical advance. As far as treatment goes, we've got much more targeted, like immunotherapy, gene-mediated therapies, um, individualized medicine, so um, less of the whole, you know, if you give this drug to 10,000 people, what happens? And more of the, okay, so which people shouldn't do this or which groups do we need to be cautious about, um, you know, and treat differently to the rest? That, that sort of medicine is coming out. Um, what else is there? I mean, it's, it's amazing how fast medicine moves. 
Um, my students look at me like I'm a dinosaur when I say, look, we didn't even have troponins when I graduated. <laughs> you know, we diagnosed MIs on ECGs. So, oh, but um, the thing is you must always be agile and keep moving with the evidence. Mm. Um, yeah, so I can't tell you what surgery will be like in 10 years' time, but I plan to be out there, you know, cresting near the front edge, and hopefully so will you. Mm. Wow. It's interesting that you um, emphasised um, following the evidence as opposed to following a fad <laughs> because it is, it is true that we are taught to um, – that everything we do must be an evidence-based practice. It's a term that, we, you know, we use all the time, and, but that can very much be different from just a fad. And, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know at all that laparoscopic surgery was um, – wasn't actually a hundred percent, you know. I suppose perfect in practice the yeah. first time that it it I suppose came out. <laughs> it was described at the time as the largest uncontrolled trial ever done because everyone just started doing it, and the advantages of it were very obvious to us. Like clearly, the difference between an open gallbladder and a laparoscopic gallbladder were very marked. The open patient stayed for a week and almost always got pneumonia because it's very hard to take a deep breath when you've got a cut that runs right along your lower rib. Mm. Um, and the laparoscopic ones got up and went home the next day. Although in the early days, we used to keep them for a couple of nights just because we were like, surely they're not ready to go home. You know, it was seemed like such a big change. But the thing was some of the early adopters um, made, you know, because it's a different view, you're looking at it from a different direction. So they didn't know the pitfalls and there were a number of people harmed um, because of that. Now, one might argue that that's almost unavoidable, that someone has to be the cowboy and start off. Um, so I think it's just making sure that you don't fall into the fat. So I think illustrated really well in the beginning of COVID, remember all, that all those trials about ivermectin as a drug. Vaguely. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was like the latest big thing. You had to pay thousands of dollars to get it on the black market. It was going to save us all from COVID. It's, come, it's turned out to be a complete load of tosh, of course. Um, mm. Yeah, you know. I mean, ditto a lot of the early COVID control measures, um, which were touted. You know, they all turned out to be false. I had to put out quite a number of sort of bushfires amongst the family who were all running around saying, we need to buy this, we need to buy that, you know, um, yes. Mm. Um, and as it turns out, for instance, remember N95s on the black market cost an absolute bomb early mm. in the thing. Yeah. But it turns out that most members of the public don't need that. They just need a simple surgical or cloth face mask. Mm. Um, yeah. So, you know, so it was all that, you know, not buying into the hysteria or the faddishness of it, but actually looking at the data and going, right, let's see how this pans out using the skills that they teach you at medical school. Mm. It's good to know that we are being given those skills for sure. It's quite reassuring. Pico question is, you know that. Yeah, Pico, classic. <laughs> classic. Yep. We can't go through this interview with you without getting to discuss diversity because we know that that is something that you are so impassioned about. Um, so do you think that surgery as a medical field amongst the others is lagging behind when it comes to diversity and inclusion? 
It is in some ways and not in others. So on the pure numbers, it definitely is. So um, I spoke at a gynecological conference um, last week and looking at their numbers and the, what they were discussing about diversity, 83% of their current trainees are female and 50% of their current fellowship is female. So they have already achieved gender parity. The week before that, we'd had the RACS ASC, the Annual Scientific Congress, where data was presented for the different specialties showing the current rate of growth and when we would achieve gender parity. And gender parity was going to be achieved for general surgery in 2080-80. And gender parity was going to be achieved in orthopedic surgery in four centuries. Because wow. in the last few years, they've doubled their female proportion from 2% to 4%. <laughs> that is so, wow. so in pure numbers we are definitely behind however in some areas we are ahead in terms of the conceptualization of where we're going so we're probably one of the few colleges that has already taken an intersectional lens to it so it's not feminist it's not you know we don't have the fragmentation it's not an lgbtqi thing it's not an indigenous thing it's not a rural surgeon thing it's not a woman thing it's just we are all intersectional Lots of us carry multiple levels of diversity and what we really need to do is figure out how we support everyone. So we're probably one of the first colleges to take that kind of quite cutting edge sociological stance. Mm. Um, and the other thing that we're ahead on is our level of investment. So um, without divulging exact figures, but the level of investment into diversity by the College of Surgeons is in the millions over the last five or six years. Yeah, literally in the millions. So we have put our money where our mouth is, really, compared to a lot of colleges where that work is expected to be done pro bono. You know, like you join a committee and you're just expected to give your spare time to it. Um, so, yeah, so we're both behind and ahead. But nevertheless, when you're like, right, so in my specialty, general surgery, we're going to get to parity in about 2080. I'm like, I, I'm not sure I'm going to be alive then. You know, I'm going to be over 100 years old. I'm not sure I'm, I'm that patient. You know, I'm, I'm just impatient. I'm like, I want to get there faster. So there's still a lot of work to do. Mm. On that note then, I mean, 2080, that seems, that's very far away. I mean. Yeah, that's ages away. <laughs> what, what are then the biggest challenges to achieving that diversity and inclusion? Like what is there remaining to do? Part of it is what I said before. It takes 10 years to train a surgeon. So even if you're looking at um, currently our fellow, our trainees are about 30%, 30 to 35 across most specialties, including orthopedics. Um, but that's across the trainees. And so you're thinking, well, they'll come online in the next five to 10 years. And so you can see the pace of change is relatively slow because of that lag time. Um, and we did once as a thought experiment in a diversity forum say, well, what would happen? How long would it take us the gender parity if we just graduated cohorts of 100% women? You know, so if we just graduated 100% and because the number we graduate every year is only a small fraction of the total fellowship, um, you know, so we graduate sort of about 200 surgeons annually um, into a fellowship of, I think, just over 7,000 at the moment. So even if you graduated cohorts of only women in most specialties it would still take us sort of between 10 and 20 years to get to parity 
of course, this caused an absolute outcry because people were saying, what do you mean? You know, and we were like, look, it's a thought experiment. We wouldn't actually do it. But on the other hand, just consider this. For decades and decades, we had 100% male cohorts. And did anyone complain about that? Clearly not. Exactly. Why yeah. are we complaining? Yeah, why are we complaining about 100% women? Yeah. <laughs> Short, yeah. Surely it's not a gender bias. No, no, don't say it's a gender bias. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that really puts things into perspective, hey? Yeah. And to switch up the tone a little bit now, um, one of the big things on many students' minds is selection criteria for yeah. uh, the different training programs. I know it's a big thing uh, on my mind. What about you, Ropa Fadza? Definitely. I'd yeah. like to know what are the boxes I need to tick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's great that a lot of the uh, different surgical specialties have those kind of uh, criteria on their website. Um, but the thing uh, we're interested in for the future is how are these kind of criteria, um, how are the qualities that uh, consultants and uh, people on the judging panels for those entering the uh, tr fellowship training changing? So yes. what kind of things are changing there? So there's more interest in the fact that some of what we select for is not so much merit as privilege. So it's certainly easier to do research if you have family members who are medical and can put you in touch with people that are known to the family, for example. Um, similarly, if you are based in a metropolitan centre, it's much easier to find and sustain a research project because it's part of a research-orientated unit than it is to initiate and keep one going from a rural setting. Um, um, similarly, in terms of gender and racial bias, of course, people tend to hang together. And so if you're looking at a fellowship that is currently 87% male, um, and still predominantly white, then if you're not from that demographic, you know, how are you going to hang out with the people that would offer you those options? So the different boards are experimenting with different ways to address this. And so, for example, AOA, the Australasian Orthopaedic Association, um, now interviews with a woman on every single interview panel. So there are three people in every panel, at least one of which is female, the female, because of the very low numbers in orthopaedics, may not necessarily be an orthopaedic surgeon. They might be, say, a surgeon from another specialty. Um, but that is has already, I mean, and it's published, There, that's already made a difference in the application gap. So the application gap is the gap between the proportion of women applying and the proportion of women who are being selected. So that's helped to address the bias at the point of selection. Similarly, things like, um, so all the specialties still do the the three, you know, the three biggies. So um, some combination of references, CV and interview. And references, of course, is just about being a good doctor. You know, that's how you get good references. CV, of course, is um, making sure that you build the CV points and, and they all recognize much the same things in terms of um, high achievements and research activity. Um, and interview, you know, practicing your interview skills is not some nice to have. It is absolutely essential, um, not just in surgery, of course. Also, when you go for job interviews or if you plan to be a public speaker like me or a social equity advocate or an advocate for anything, really, you've got to learn to just sit and deliver. 
to organize your thoughts and get them out there in a series of sentences that make mm. sense and not just end up with word salad. Um, so, so those are big three. But quite apart from that, the various boards are experimenting with different things. And so um, there's at least one board that's now using 360 degree assessments. So the nursing and administrative staff will make an assessment of you to make sure that you're not one of those people that plays the game and dumps on dumps on the less powerful. Right. <laughs> yep. Um, some of the specialties require a procedural skills or logbook. So to see what you can and can't do. So for instance, general surgery requires you to sign off on a procedural skills logbook to say that you can at least open a laparotomy, that you can stitch and tie, that you can do a simple laparoscopic appendectomy, for example. Mm. Um, some of them, um, ear, nose and throat currently, sorry, ear, nose and throat now renamed to otorhinolaryngology, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, currently uses situational judgment tests for its applicants to see whether you have real-world experience and can manage um, situations. Mm. Wow, that's, uh, that's a lot of changes that's, uh, that are happening. We had such an amazing and extensive chat with Associate Professor Liang that we decided to release our conversation with her in two parts. So if you've enjoyed this episode so far, Please continue to our next episode to listen to The Changing Landscape of Surgery, Part 2. Thank you for listening to another episode of Behind the Scalpel. If you want more episodes, head to www.surgia.org or search for Behind the Scalpel on Spotify or Apple Music.